Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. The final from Progressive Field. It's our final regular season game of the year. It's the Cleveland Guardians 9 at Kansas City Royals 2. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. And what a high note to go out on to end the regular season to lead yourself into the playoffs. Not really to go out on, right? To build momentum with, to go into the playoffs. What a showing by your Cleveland Guardians. I mean, this had everything you'd want in a Guardians game. It had hustle. It had opposite field singles. It had strikeouts via curveball from our pitchers. Uh, Yeah, it was just a really, really fun game. And I that's that's what's so special about this team. That's what's so special. You know, a lot of talk about this week has been about getting Cleveland fans back on the Guardians bandwagon. Whether they're fans that left because of the name change or they're fans that left because they traded away Francisco Lindor and Carlos Santana and all the names that they recognized, right? Uh, Corey Kluber... Whatever the reason is that they disappeared, uh, a lot of the talk this week has been getting them back on the bandwagon. And frankly, I think you morning people know that have been with us all season that this has been one of the most fun teams in literally Cleveland baseball history. Literally. I'm sure the fans of the 48 Indians and the 1920 Indians probably thought those teams were pretty fun too. 54 was probably a pretty fun year. The 90s, obviously, were iconic. But this team, I mean, for the kids that are growing up in Cleveland right now, this has probably been the most fun team that they've ever seen. Uh, Not to take anything away from those 20-teen years, right, the Francisco Lindor years, those teams were fantastically talented. And, I mean, some of the runs, the, the win streaks, my God. But just this, something about this style of baseball has just been special. And this season has been special. And all the new names and faces that are going to become iconic, they will have their pictures up along the walls of Progressive Field one day, along with some of those other Bob Fellers and, you know, CeCe Sabathias and, you know, Albert Bells, like all these historic names. I can keep going, right? Al Rosen's, uh, Nap Lajue's. Their names are going to be up there. Stephen Kwan's going to be up there. I mean, Will Brennan might be up there one day. So have pity on those Cleveland fans that left, right? And welcome them back with open arms because we need the whole city to kind of rise up together uh, to make this playoff run, to handle the Tampa Bay Rays, to face the vaunted New York Yankees if we make it to the ALDS. We need to come together as a fan base and really fight for this team. So let's get into this thing. We've got so much to talk about. We obviously are going to talk about the game, Game 162, the win over the Royals. We're going to preview this Rays series coming up a little bit. We got an email from Chris that's going to launch us into that. A very nice email from Chris. He says, thanks for being the voice of Cleveland Guardians fan base over the 2020 regular season. I'm really excited about this year's team's potential in the postseason as well. Hopefully, they can close out the Royals this afternoon first. Obviously, wrote this email before the game was played. Uh, He says, I totally relate. You know the episodes have been going up a little bit late lately. We're dealing with a sick baby in the house. That's why this episode is going up late. And he says, I totally relate and understand the nights as a dad when my boys are sick. Hopefully, he's feeling better soon. Thank you, Chris. I I think we're on the back end of it. 
Uh, and so we're going to save his question, uh, Chris in New Jersey. Uh, we're going to save his question and let that lead us into our conversation about the Rays. But first, we've got to talk about this game because just like for 161 games before us, the Guardians entertained us with hustle, being aggressive, with having fun. That game yesterday did not need to be played at Progressive Field. You could have stuck those guys on a sandlot field somewhere, and they would have played the exact same game. Because, man, were they just having fun playing baseball. So uh, let's get into it. Let's get into the storylines of this game. Savali comes out looking mostly sharp. I mean, he strikes out the side in the first inning, but does give up a monster home run to Pasquatino. Uh, I guess not a monster home run. It was only 97.9 mile per hour exit velocity, 375 uh, out to right field. Uh, It was a cutter. It was a cutter up and into the lefty, and he turned on it. He would give up two solo home runs on cutters. And look, if Savali pitches in these playoffs, it's not going to be against the Rays. It's going to be against the Yankees. And we know the Yankees can hit home runs. Beside Aaron Judge, the Yankees can hit home runs. It's going to be something ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's going to be some guy you've never heard of before, some or some journeyman second baseman like Runano Dor, who's going to like go off for multiple home runs, right? That just seems to happen every time we face the Yankees. Uh, so Savali facing the Yankees. Yes, I am a little worried about the home runs, but he does strike out the side in the first inning, which was pretty impressive. The curveball looked ridiculously sharp, and it would continue to be sharp throughout the entire game. So they scratch across one in the first. All right, fine. Let's get these Guardians up. Somehow, Stephen Kwan strikes out to lead off the game. That's that's an, a unique moment. Uh, Ahmed Rosario backs him up, though. He goes, I believe, let me go over to the matchup here. I believe everybody in this first inning went opposite field. So Ahmed Rosario comes up. He, uh, he takes a first pitch fastball, goes inside out on it, and shoots it into right field for a single. All right, we got one guy on. Jose Ramirez comes up. He takes an outside fastball on the fourth pitch. He shoots it in the left field. He goes opposite field. Ahmed Rosario goes first to third. Ramirez thought about going for two on this one, but had to scamper back to first. He would get aggressive later in the game and go for it. After Andres Jimenez strikes out, Jimenez did, Jimenez did have a rough game. Uh, Naylor would come up. He would also get a high outside fastball from Heasley. Jonathan Heasley on the mound for the Royals. He would shoot this thing, one-hop the wall in right center field, 100.2 mile per hour exit velocity. Talk about going up and getting one. This one was up at his shoulders. And he punches it out into left center field. Uh, It brings in two runs to score. The Guardians are up 2-1. to Boom, that happened fast. And the Guardians do not let up. Oscar Gonzalez takes a walk. Good job from Oscar Gonzalez right there being patient. Will Brennan comes up. He's the only one to pull the ball in the entire inning. Well, it's the pitch he got. Uh, Heasley was staying outside on him, but comes back with a curveball right at the thighs on the inside half of the plate. And that's a pitch you're going to pull. I mean, some you know, a fastball up and away is the perfect thing to shoot to the opposite field. Naylor did exactly what he's supposed to do with that pitch. 
Brennan is a different situation. He gets an inside curveball. Pull that thing. And he does. He shoots it into right field. 103.1 miles per hour. And it brings in Josh Naylor to score. Gonzalez goes first to third with maybe the ugliest slide of the entire season. The old belly flop slide. But he's in there safe. And then Luke Maley comes up. And the righty shoots one just right of center field. We'll call it an opposite field hit. Inside out on a fastball. Uh, and fights it off into center field, and it brings in Oscar Gonzalez to score. So the Guardians bat through the lineup. Miles Straw, unfortunately, would line out to right field. He would try to go opposite field. He would line out to right field to end the threat. Um, But the Guardians bat through the lineup in the very first inning of this game and talk about setting a tone. Talk about putting your stamp on the game. Four runs in the first inning, mostly on opposite field hits, Right? Brennan's the only one to pull the ball. I mean, that has to be what every team in this playoffs is worried about with the Guardians. Every team in this playoffs is going to do it a little bit differently. With the Yankees, you're worried about home runs. Toronto, Seattle, home runs. With Cleveland, and you know, I'm going to throw Tampa Bay in there too. And uh, maybe Houston's a little bit of both. Uh, with Cleveland and Tampa Bay, you are worried about big innings like this. You're worried about them getting hot as a lineup together and throwing up three, four, five runs in an inning. Things can get out of control really quickly with the Guardians playing like this. And they were relentless, absolutely relentless. They do not let up. They score, they scratch across a solo run in the second, third, sixth, seventh, eighth innings of this game. They absolutely keep hammering away at the Kansas City Royals pitching. No matter whether it's Heasley, who stayed in for five innings, gives up nine hits, six runs, two walks, four strikeouts on 86 pitches. He's hard hit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Or they bring in Carlos Hernandez, who gives up four hits. Luke Weaver gives up two hits in a run. They just never stop. Not None of them are via the home run. It's all singles and doubles um, just hammering away. Later in the game, Stephen Kwan would get a hustle double and uh, end up coming in to score. That was the lead off the uh, second inning. A hustle double from Stephen Kwan. He just hits one into the gap and right center. Not that hard, 82.5, but he's off at the crack of the bat. On the 162nd game of the season, he is hustling into second with a double. Ahmed Rosario grounder moves him over. Jose Ramirez with the second hit of the game brings him in to score. Great stuff right there from the Guardians. In the third inning, Will Brennan's going to kick things off with a double. Miles Straw's going to sack fly him in. Again, hustling. You don't have, I mean, they, they're they on game 162. They're getting ready for the playoffs. You don't have to be this aggressive on the base path. And they are. They are ridiculously aggressive. They finally get Jose Ramirez out in the fourth inning. They hit Andres Jimenez with another pitch. 25 hit by pitch. I think I believe it leads Major League Baseball, blows away the Guardians' record. I, maybe one of these days during the offseason, we'll try to diagnose what was happening. I mean, he's a guy who clearly, clearly stands... A, 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 does he stand that aggressively at the plate? Does he cover the plate up? You know, guys like... I think of guys like Abreu in Chicago that, you know, big power hitters that tend to crowd the plate. I don't know if Andres Jimenez is one of those guys. Do they just think they could beat him by you know pitching inside? Is that sort of a weak spot in his swing? And that's why they've been so aggressive going inside at him? I don't know. Maybe over in the offseason, we'll have to diagnose and figure out what was going on there. Um, in the uh, sixth inning, a leadoff walk is going to turn into a run. Jose Ramirez 
drives in another run in the sixth inning. And then in the seventh inning, Miles Straw would return the favor with the third single of the inning. He would drive in Oscar Gonzalez to score. Uh, Gonzalez probably would have been thrown out at the plate here, but the catcher can't handle the throw, and so Gonzalez is safe, but safe, but staying aggressive, super aggressive. And then the play I've been waiting for, the eighth inning, Jose Ramirez with the leadoff double in the eighth inning. Again, another hustle double here. He drops one. Uh, Jose Ramirez shoots one in the left center field and just turns and burns in the eighth inning of a game where they're already up eight to two. He is relentless. He, I mean, and he looks at the dugout and he laughs and he smiles and, you know, the dugout is fired up for him because they know this is their recipe for success. They know this is the way they're going to win. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen like this. By staying aggressive the entire baseball game, 15 hits in this game, nine runs scored. Josh Naylor would drive him in with an RBI single uh, to put that ninth run across and to finish this rally for the Guardians. So, I mean, this type of baseball, Tampa Bay has to be worried about what this Guardians team is going to do if they all get hot like this. I mean, this is the momentum you want going into the playoffs. You couldn't ask for anything better on game 162 heading into the playoffs. Will it matter come Friday? No. Every day you erase the scoreboard, you start back at 0-0, and you got to do it all over again, and you got to put in the work again. And you're going to be facing a tough pitcher, much tougher pitching than Kansas City has to offer. But, man, to put yourself in the right frame of mind, to remind yourself of how you win, of how you're successful... This was the tune-up that was absolutely perfect for this Guardians offense heading into the playoffs. So that was the huge storyline of the game. On the other side of things, Aaron Savali, like I said, that curveball was just nasty. He ends up with nine strikeouts and six innings pitched. Uh, Five hits, does give up two earned runs on two solo home runs. At least they were solo home runs. Honestly, if Savali gives you that line, against the New York Yankees in the playoffs, if he gives up 200 home runs, but they're both solo home runs, sign me up right now. I think we can win that game. I think if Savali goes out there, gives up two solo home runs, and that's it, that's all they can put across on him, turn things over to our bullpen, let our offense cook a little bit, I think we can win that game. So I'm encouraged by this, even with the two solo home runs. Uh, clearly he needs to stay away from throwing that cutter up and into lefties because both home runs, Isbell would hit one later in the game in the fifth inning off him. Both were from cutters up and in to left-handed hitters. So, all right, we could diagnose that problem. That's a pretty simple one to figure out. But the nine strikeouts were awesome, and most of them were via the curveball. And just a nasty, nasty curveball from Savali. He actually got two uh, strikeouts looking. He freezes Melendez on a full count and gets uh, Drew Waters on an 0-2 count frozen with a curveball. He actually freezes Bobby Wood Jr. with a 3-2 fastball, a two-seam sinker on that gloves edge of the plate. And then the rest of them are curveballs down at the knees. Oh, so many swinging strikes down below the knees, right down the middle of the plate. He... um, Interesting note from Hamilton. He said that he uh, kind of built his curveball to be like Adam Wainwright's from the uh, the legendary curveball pitcher from the St. Louis Cardinals. 
I mean, I guess when I say legendary, you think of someone from like the 30s and 40s, right? A more recent legend, but still pretty legendary pitcher from the St. Louis Cardinals. So yeah, it's uh, modeled after Wainwright. And unlike other professions, right? These aren't stand-up comics where you get absolutely destroyed for stealing material. In baseball, it's a thing they do all the time. They're constantly looking at each other's grips, at their deliveries, at their arm angles, uh, and constantly stealing and pilfering from each other and making it their own. And this is something that's actually encouraged in baseball. Like, this is the one time stealing is okay in baseball. Uh, these guys do it all the time. They they share and help each other out and learn from each other. And so he modeled his curveball after Wainwright, who's got a pretty darn good curveball himself. And it was effective. I mean, let's go to the CSW numbers on this pitch. If he could bring this curveball into the playoffs, my God, nine whiffs on 12 swings for a 75% whiff rate. Add in nine called strikes on the curveball. It's good for a 64% CSW. The three they were able to put in play, they had an average exit velocity of 78.3. So, I mean, that is just beautiful. Just perfect. It's a 36% CSW total on the day for Savali. Through the cutter the most, through that 31 times, then the curve, then the two-seam sinker. Uh, a few four-seamers and split-fingers mixed in there, two each, so kind of outliers there. Uh, so yeah, cutter-curve-sinker, that's the mix coming from Savali right now. They talked about simplifying things. They talked about, you know, he he threw too many pitches at one time, right? And so they talked about simplifying things, and clearly he's kind of got it down to these three pitches, and it's working for him. He has been sharp lately. This is back to the Savali we saw in the first half of the 2021 season when he was carrying the whole pitching staff. So give me this Savali in the playoffs, man. Nine strikeout, hammer, curveball Savali. Yeah, I'll take that as my fourth starter in the playoffs. All right, speaking of the playoffs, let's wrap this game up. Uh, the bullpen would come in after Savali and just throw up some zeros on the board. Stefan, De Los Santos, and Eli Morgan all getting in a little bit of work. Uh, three shutout innings combined amongst those guys. So almost like a spring training guy. Everybody just going in, getting their work, uh, shutting down the Royals, who at this point had to have really given up on the season. In fact, they let go of their manager after this game. Matheny's out in Kansas City now. So uh, two managers in the AL Central have been let go. And I got to think the Guardians had a little bit to do with that, right? I mean, our style of baseball, the way we hammered this division, I feel like we kind of drove some of those managers out of this division, especially Tony La Russa. Matheny, eh, he just could never get it going at Kansas City. He couldn't find the magic that he had when he was managing St. Louis. Uh, the Royals are really, really stuck in this rebuild. It's just not. It's, even with Bobby Witt Jr.'s and some of the other talented players, they can't keep a lot of guys healthy. And yeah, this rebuild, the pitchers, their, their pitchers that they drafted really never developed into aces like they wanted. And uh, yeah, Kansas City's got a lot of work ahead of it to get themselves back to relevancy. So your Guardians win game 162. MVP on the day has to go to Jose Ramirez for just a beautiful final game. Four hits and five at-bats, uh, two RBIs, a double and a run scored. Jose Ramirez was all over this game. All over this game. I mean, just absolutely. Everybody except for Andres Jimenez hit in the starting lineup, but Jose Ramirez clearly was the spark plug 
uh, of this offense, was clearly leading this offense, and he was doing it in his way. Yeah, he's going to hit home runs. But honestly, I love four for five games with a bunch of opposite field singles. I love games like that from Jose Ramirez. I love when he steals that extra base and gets that hustle double. I love watching that batting helmet fly off his head because he's hustling into an extra base, going first to third. I mean, that's how he leads his team. And Quan's picked up on it. Ahmed Rosario's picked up on it. Andres Jimenez has picked up on it. Even Naylor will try to steal a base. Even he's picked up on it. And he's got, you know, he doesn't have a great sprint speed, but he'll take a base. He'll surprise you. They all, Gonzalez is playing that way. Brennan has come up and fit right in with these guys. Straw, when he can get on base, he's doing it too, stealing bases. So all of these guys have modeled their game after Jose Ramirez, and there's just so much speed in this lineup now. It's it's a unique style of baseball to today's baseball, and man, I'm so glad it's Guardians baseball. All right. So MVP on the day going to Jose Ramirez. All right, Chris, let's go back to your email and let's lead it into our discussion of what's coming up with Tampa Bay. He says, going into game one, I'm seeing on ESPN that the Rays are starting a left-handed pitcher Shane McClanahan on Friday. What do you think Terry Francona's game one lineup against a left-hander? I really hope that he keeps Josh Naylor and Andres Jimenez in it. Well, Chris, I'm going to say you're, you're half right there. I think Andres Jimenez is definitely going to be in this lineup for all three games, no matter who's pitching. I mean, this guy is our all-star second baseman. Even Francona knows uh, that this guy can hit lefties, and he's going to leave him in there. Unfortunately, Jimenez does go. Remember, we were talking about him getting the 300 or staying at 300 for the season. Unfortunately, he goes 0 for 4 on the day. He was the only one. Uh, So his betting average drops to 297. So it's not going to look as cool on the back of your baseball card. Sorry, Andres. Uh, Quan can't get there either. He finishes at 298. Um, so yeah, uh, I think Andres Jimenez will be in there. I don't know about Naylor. I don't. I think, uh, we've looked at the splits and, uh, Naylor splits against left-handed pitching is really, really bad. It fell off. At one point he had a low batting average, but a high OPS at one point in the season. It has really fallen off, uh, towards the end of the season here. And I'm pulling it up really quick for you. Against left-handed hitting, he's hitting 173 with a 512 OPS. That's just, it's not good enough to stay in the lineup against lefties. It's not, especially a tough one like McClanahan. So I think Owen Miller is going to start at first base on Friday. I really do. I think Naylor will come in as soon as a right-handed pitcher comes out of that bullpen. As soon as he gets a chance, he's going to get Naylor into the game. I think Owen Miller is starting this game against the lefty McClanahan. And what leads me into believing that? Well, we've already faced McClanahan once this season. We faced him at the very end of July, July 31st. Remember, we actually did a lot of damage against McClanahan. We jumped on him in the second inning for three runs. Uh, And then two more in the fifth inning. We drove this guy. He lasted four and a third innings, gave up seven hits, gave up five earned runs, three walks, four strikeouts, only one hard hit ball on 96 pitches, but we turned it into seven hits and five runs. How were we doing it? We were hitting his changeup. He was leaving his changeup up, and it was all singles. We were just lacing singles off him. And in this lineup, there is no Josh Naylor. In this lineup, you got Reyes at Reyes at DH. Probably one of his final appearances in Cleveland, right? 
Ray is a DH. You got uh, Erding Clement getting the start at first base against the left-handed pitcher. I mean, this lineup is actually pretty crazy. You got Alex Call hitting sixth. Remember him? Uh, you got Clement uh, hitting seventh then at first base. So he stacked the lineup with righties against McClanahan. So expect to see that again. I think Quan and I think Andres Jimenez will be your two lefties in the lineup. I think everybody else will be a switch or right-handed hitter. So I'm guessing Strong will be in there in center field. I'm guessing Oscar Gonzalez will be in there in right. The question is, will Brennan be in there? Who's going to DH in this one? Um, will Brennan get the start in right field and uh, Oscar Gonzalez DH this game? Will he put another lefty in there against McClanahan, or will he figure out a right-handed bat off of his bench that could DH? You know, I it, I don't know who's going to make this playoff roster. Is Arias going to make this playoff roster? Uh, is Will Benson going to make this roster? Is Bo Naylor going to make this playoff roster? So I don't exactly know who's going to be on this playoff roster to tell you who might hold down that DH spot against a left-handed starter. But uh, yeah, I don't think... I don't think Josh Naylor is going to start the game, but I think we're going to see him. And he'll definitely be starting game two against Glass now, against the righty. Um, so uh, McClanahan and Glass now are who we are facing in game one and game two. Man, McClanahan, you go over his baseball savant page, his uh, percentile rankings, everything is in the red. Everything is bright red, fastball velocity, whiff rate, expected slugging percentage. Hard hit percentage. The only thing that's not in the red is his fastball spin, which when you throw it as hard as he does, what does it matter? Averages 97 miles per hour on that fastball. But his two big pitches are the changeup and the curveball. He stopped throwing the slider as much this season. It's weighed down the usage on the slider. He still uses it against the lefties. When he faces lefties, they're getting mostly forcing fastballs and sliders. Against the righties, which they're going to stack the lineup with righties, it's a lot of change-ups and a lot of curveballs. And, uh, I mean, teams are hitting 145 off his change-up. They're hitting 139 off his curveball. They're slugging 181 off his change-up. That's it. 181 slugging off his change-up and a 215 slugging off his curveball. So, that's what we're facing in game one. And like I said, his changeup was up. It usually has a whiff rate of 44.6%. 44.6%. In that game, we faced him at the end of July. By the way, Brian Shaw started that game as the opener. Uh, he was down to a 20% whiff rate on that changeup. Three whiffs on 15 swings. So yeah, we did a decent job of handling that changeup. Uh, he was leaving it up, so we'll see what he does in, you know, in this one. Is he locating that changeup, or is he struggling with it facing Cleveland? So that's what we're facing in Shane McClanahan. Gets a ton of ground balls, has a 50.6% ground ball rate. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, So that's what we're facing here uh, from McClanahan. My God, the run value on these pitches. The run value on his four-seamer is minus six. The run value on his changeup is minus 13. On his curveball, it's minus 10. On the slider, it's two, plus two. So you can see why he stopped throwing it as much. Uh, Wow. Wow. Those are some of the best pitches in baseball. Uh, All right. Glass now is going to be pitching game two. That's already been announced. We don't know how deep he's going to go. He's literally just coming back from Tommy John. His appearance against us like two week, a week ago, two weeks ago, was his first appearance back since surgery. 
So the guy's only pitched in two games, and he's going to be starting game two. So don't be surprised if this is some kind of piggyback game. If a Corey Kluber or somebody else from the Rays uh, starting rotation piggybacks off of Glasnow. Glasnow maybe goes three innings, and then somebody else goes the next three innings. Just because this guy isn't built up to a lot of pitches. What are we going to get in Glasnow? You're going to get another 97-mile-per-hour fastball, four-seam fastball. Mix in a slider and a curve on that. Now, the slider and the curve, I mean, were really good pitches. Were pretty darn good pitches back in 2021. But um, they're a little bit different right now. Uh, Man, the batting average off his curveball in 2021 was 085. 0.085 off his curveball. With a 56.1% whiff rate. This is in 2021. Uh, It's still got a 75% whiff rate. He's only thrown it 21 times. Okay, very small sample size, but still a 75% whiff rate on his curveball. This season, nobody's actually hit his curveball in his two appearances this season. Um, so look out for the curveball again. Now, what I'll tell you is that he's not spinning it. Um, the movement, he's not getting the movement on it that he got in 2021 on both the slider and the curveball. So back then, they were some of the nastiest pitches in baseball. I mean, this is a deep red color, which let me lets me know. It won't tell me if I hover over it, but the deep red color lets me know that it's near the top of the percentile rankings for average movement on a slider and a curveball. For the slider, it was 6.1% better than the league average. And for a curveball, it was 6.9 inches, not percent, inches better than the league average. Well, both those pitches are down this year. Uh, The curveball is dropping about four less inches the slider is dropping uh, almost 10 less inches. So a much different slider coming out of the hand um, from uh, Tyler Glass now, right now. So is it a thing where he's just hasn't built up those pitches? He hasn't found the mechanics, found the arm slot on those pitches yet because he hasn't been pitching all season? Probably. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what those what those vertical drops go back to next season when he has a full spring training to get those pitches ready. So they're not exactly the same pitches they were in 2021 when they were two of the most dominant pitches in baseball, but that's what we're up against. We're up against a curveball that's got a 75% whiff rate right now and has not been hit for a base hit yet in two appearances. That's what we're up against with Glass now. So we have definitely got our work cut out for us against these two pitchers. They are talented. But I'm sure that the Rays cadre of podcasters are saying the same thing about Bieber and about McKenzie right now. They're talking about McKenzie's curveball. And they're scared of McKenzie's curveball. They're scared of Bieber's curveball. And they should be. And they should be. I mean, this is, I'm telling you, we saw this when they were here. Right, Two games go to extra innings. They're one-run games. They're tight games. And that's what these playoff games are going to be. It's not... I. Who knows? You never know with the game of baseball. But I would put my money that these are not going to be 9-2 runaways like game 162 was. I'm guessing these are going to be really, really tight games. Because don't forget that they have a lot of playoff experience in their lineup, in their starting lineup. A Rosarena, 
Um, G-Man Choi. Uh, who else in their lineup? Uh, Yandy Diaz. These guys have all been to the playoffs before. They've been to the World Series before. Remember, in that 2020 COVID season, wasn't it the Rays up against the Dodgers in the World Series? They have a lot of experience, playoff experience in that lineup. And so they're going to be ready for this moment. Uh, you know, our young guys, a lot of them, this is their first taste of postseason action. So it is going to be really interesting to see. It's going to be a tight game. The Rays can get on a roll just as easily as the Guardians can. So uh, it's going to be a pitching duel for sure. But, uh, I mean, man, if we can get to McClanahan like we did the last time we faced him, that is just going to set a tone for the whole series. I really think if we could jump on him for a crooked number in the first inning or two, that is going to really set a tone for this entire series. All right. I mean, I could run through the entire pitching staff for Tampa Bay. I can run through the entire lineup. But at some point, I just got to put down the microphone and they've got to play the game. So I think that's a good place to end our conversation right there. Uh, Chris, I, I, I hope we see Josh Naylor have a big moment in this one. I just don't know if it's going to be in the first half of the game, as long as McClanahan's in there. So uh, we will see who makes this roster. Oh, my God. I can't wait to see what Guardians Twitter is once the playoff roster is announced. And we'll see who's in that starting lineup for Game 1 against Glass now. Now, I know a lot of you are upset that they're noon games, right? That we got disrespected by Major League Baseball. There's a tiny part of me that, I mean, you look at the teams that are playing, and of course the West Co- the games with West Coast teams in it get a little bit of a later start. Like, that just kind of makes sense that the Padres and Seattle are playing later games. But then they moved St. Louis um, and Phillies, their game into primetime, for the next two days of the weekend, for Saturday and Sunday, and Cleveland never really moves off. I mean, we get two noon games and then a 4 o'clock start, which I'm guessing they did because the Browns are playing a home game, and downtown Cleveland would have been just absolutely a disaster zone with both teams starting around the same time. So it makes sense to stagger those starts a little bit if you're making the schedule. That's probably the only reason we move off of that noon time slot. We're two East Coast teams, so, you know, it does make a little bit of a sense from that sense. We are two of the smaller fan bases, let's be honest. So, uh, you know, ESPN thinks they're going to get more eyeballs from Philadelphia and St. Louis. All right, fine, fine. Everybody's going to miss out on a fantastic baseball game. We might play the best series of any of these matchups with Tampa Bay. And so everybody's going to miss out on that because ESPN puts it on at noon. And, you know, the other thing is... Frankly, I've spent the last few years of my life, and especially this season, just fitting baseball into my life. Whatever time the games are on, I figure out a way to get some eyeballs on it. So it's just, it's not that strange for me to have to watch a game at work. It's not. I I hope some of you can call off sick on Friday and uh, enjoy this thing, right? I'll be watching it at work. I'll be setting up for an event. I'll have it on. You know me. I'll have it on. I'll have my eyes on this thing. I'll see I'll see enough. I'll enjoy it. If it were at night, would it be any more enjoyable running around with a baby and a family and a dog? I'd probably see maybe even less of the game uh, if it were on at night. So I know it's frustrating. You want to have a night. You maybe want to have a playoff party and stuff like that. It's going to have to wait until Saturday. 
It just is. So uh, we'll get through it together Friday. We'll come together as a fan base and we'll get through it together on Friday. It's going to feel like that same vibe that opening day has, right? Because the stadium's going to be packed. Even though there are still a few tickets available, I have no doubt that stadium is going to be packed. It's going to be loud. It's going to be exciting, right? This city of Cleveland knows how to get up for a playoff series. They know how to bring it for the playoffs. So you're going to see a show. From those of you spread out around the world, you're going to see a show from Cleveland fans. And I hope some of you can make it here. I hope some of you, I hope you got your tickets. I hope you can make it to the game. I wasn't able to get tickets until the ALDS, so I'm really hoping we handle Tampa Bay so I can go down there and see some playoff baseball against the Yankees. Um, So yeah, let's do it. Let's go out there. Let's have some fun baseball, right? Let's play the Guardians way and let's go have some fun baseball. All right. That's all my thoughts. The dog's barking at me, telling me to get off the microphone. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. Again, the final in game 162 to wrap up the regular season. It's the Guardians 9, the Royals 2. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. I will be uh, hopefully tweeting a ton during these playoffs. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com, just like Chris did. If you've got predictions for what the first game lineup is going to look like, let me know. We'll discuss it on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor. So if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play it back on the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. <laughs>